Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Also, welcome to the second to last episode of Titanic Month here on the channel. Today, we will be discussing the aftermath of the sinking of Titanic and its impact on society. Before we dive in, I must inform you. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before I begin that I am not a lawyer, mariner, or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. Today, there will be some terms in the French and German languages in which I am not fluent, but I will do my best to give accurate pronunciations. One more very important note before we begin. All three ships of the Olympic class of the White Star Line are beloved by many, including myself. There is an enormous amount of information on RMS Titanic, some of it conflicting. I will be pulling from many sources and going off of the most common findings among researchers. Please note that as soon as I click post on this video, the information will be outdated. With all of the Olympic class ships, there is new information coming out all the time. There are many details I might leave out for brevity's sake, and no, I don't do that to hide information or to confuse. If corrections are to be made in the comments section or additional information added, please feel free to do so respectfully. There's no need to get nasty with one another over 110-year-old vessels that none of us were personally there to witness or record information about. We want to keep our comment section a safe and fun place to talk about our love of ships. Okay everyone, we pick up where we left off. You and the other passengers and crew are now in the icy Atlantic Ocean. Remember, the air temperature was right around freezing and the water was 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Very cold. Around you are debris from the once beautiful ocean liner, which was floating just hours ago. Chairs furnishing from the walls, tables, doors, timber beams, chunks of cork from the bulkheads, and lots of smaller debris like blankets, clothes, and other trinkets. Some of these items rocketed up from the ship as she was sinking, injuring or killing others around you, while others used this to try and stay afloat. You might still be in a state of shock, but around you are hundreds of people crying, praying, begging for mercy, and screaming. It's so loud. It's as loud as a sports stadium, with the splashing, screaming, crying, and unmistakable sound of drowning and death. The cold temperature of the sea was lethal, with Charles Lytoller describing the feeling of this cold water like, quote, a thousand knives being driven into the skin. Being immersed in freezing water like this can cause a few things one of which is almost immediate death, or at least within a few minutes, from either uncontrollable breathing of water from the gasp reflex, cardiac arrest, or cold shock, which is different than hypothermia. Cold shock response is a series of neurogenic cardiorespiratory responses caused by a sudden immersion in cold water, and it is the most common cause of death in cold water like this. Hypothermia is defined as a body core temperature below 95 degrees Fahrenheit in humans, and it happens more gradually. It has two main causes, exposure to cold weather on dry land and cold water immersion. Symptoms of hypothermia depend upon the temperature. When a person dies from hypothermia, they typically perform what is called terminal burrowing, or hide-and-die syndrome, where the victim will enter a small enclosed space to pass away in their sleep. This wasn't the case for the victims of Titanic, most of which would die within the first 15 to 30 minutes due to the extreme cold. 
Of all of the people in the water, only 13 were rescued by the lifeboats, despite the fact that there were enough seats for 500 more people. And hopefully, you're one of them. If you're one of the lucky few who made it into a lifeboat, you had the unpleasant experience of hearing what survivor Lawrence Beasley called, quote, every possible emotion of human fear, despair, agony, fierce resentment, and blind anger mingled. I'm certain of those with notes of infinite surprise, as though each one were saying, how is it possible that this awful thing is happening to me, that I should be caught in this death trap? Honestly, I think Mr. Beasley hit the nail on the head with that one. I could definitely see that being the honest experience of everyone in the water, and I could see myself thinking the exact same thoughts. Jack Thayer, a first-class passenger who survived the sinking, compared it to the sound of locusts on a summer night, though I wouldn't know that sound since I don't live in an area where locusts are common. Quote, a dismal moaning sound which I won't ever forget. It came from those poor people who were floating around calling for help. It was horrifying, mysterious, supernatural, is how George Reams described it. This horrifying sound was a shocking, traumatizing experience for those in the lifeboats who felt helpless to do anything about it, especially since many at the time had believed everyone was able to safely escape. This was their first moment realizing not everyone was to be saved. Among the few in the water who survived were Charles Lightoller, Jack Thayer, and Archibald Gracie, all three of whom had managed to make it to Collapsible B. Twelve crew had made it to Collapsible B and were trying to help the 35 men clinging to the side of the overturned boat. They realized quickly that they could be swamped by the scared, desperate mass of people and so they paddled away slowly, ignoring the pleas of many. Colonel Archibald Gracie would later write about the experience, recalling turning away many, many swimmers. He would write about them with admiration, stating, quote, in no instance, I am happy to say, did I hear any word of rebuke from a swimmer because of a refusal to grant assistance. One refusal was met with the manly voice of a powerful man. All right, boys, good luck and God bless you. According to Colonel Gracie, rumor has it that this man could have possibly been Captain Smith. Other men aboard Collapsible B stated as such, including Stoker Harry Sr. and entree cook Isaac Maynard stating Smith was there, with fireman Walter Hurst affirming that he most definitely thought the man Gracie was referring to was Captain Smith. Hurst thought this man was cheering on the occupants of Collapsible B, yelling, quote, good boys, good lads, with the voice of authority. Hurst was so deeply touched by this man's honor and valor that he reached out to him with an oar later, only to find this man to be already dead. About 20 or so swimmers reached Collapsible A, which was partially flooded due to the fact that its sides hadn't been raised properly. And so those who climbed into the boat sat in a foot of freezing water. Many of those in Collapsible A died overnight due to the slow onset of hypothermia. Drifting in the still, glass-like sea much farther out from Collapsibles A and B were the other 18 lifeboats, many with empty seats. The occupants of the lifeboats wondered what they should do for the hundreds of swimmers crying out for help, if anything at all. The general fear was that the lifeboats would be swamped and tipped over, so they stayed away as hundreds drowned. The closest lifeboat to the sinking ship was Lifeboat 4, which was only about 160 feet away. Two people had actually been able to drop down into Lifeboat 4 from the ship and one other was scooped up from the water before Titanic foundered. Afterwards, seven more men were pulled up into Lifeboat 4, though two of these men would pass away from hypothermia. Collapsible D rescued one man who had jumped into the water and swam over to it immediately after the boat had been lowered. The rest of the lifeboats decided against returning to the site to save anyone else. 
Of course, there were some firm objections as people wanted to help those stranded. Quartermaster Hikins was in command of Lifeboat 6, and he sternly told the women in his boat that there was no point in going back to help anyone, as there were, quote, only a lot of stiffs there. To me, that's just disgusting. I can understand the fear of being capsized, but referring to your fellow man as stiffs is something else entirely. It took about 20 minutes for the noise from the swimmers to start to die down as they either died or slipped into unconsciousness. Of course, there was still a haunting moan with echoing whimpers in the otherwise dead silence of the sea. Fifth Officer Lowe was in charge of lifeboat 14 and he, quote, waited until the yells and shrieks had subsided for the people to thin out before returning to rescue what little remained alive. To me, again, this is just foul. I'd risk losing my own life before sitting there and doing absolutely nothing. Lowe would round up five lifeboats, transferring the occupants between them to free up space in lifeboat 14, then taking a crew of seven crewmen and a male passenger who graciously volunteered back to where Titanic had once been not 30 minutes earlier. Almost everyone was dead, but a few faint voices could be heard asking for help. Lady Lucy Duff Gordon, a leading British fashion designer, recalled her time in the lifeboats after the sinking, stating that, quote, the very last cry was that of a man who had been calling loudly, my God, my God. He cried monotonously in a dull, hopeless way. For an entire hour, there had been an awful chorus of shrieks, gradually dying into a hopeless moan until this last cry that I speak of, then all was silent. Granted, it probably wasn't a full hour, but it must have felt like it. And for some of the survivors, the guilt of the awful silence was even worse than the horrible shrieking they just endured. I can only imagine the horrifying absence of sound, and just knowing that everyone who was certainly alive only a few moments before was either dead or dying. The guilt would just be too much. Lowe and his crew found four men who were still alive. One of them died shortly after rescue. Let's hope you were either already in a lifeboat or in this group. Otherwise, you'd probably be among what Lowe and his men described as, quote, hundreds of bodies and life belts, with the dead seeming, quote, as if they had perished with the cold as their limbs were all cramped up. Not only were there dead people, but later the body of a woman holding on to her dog were found. Every animal on board Titanic perished alongside the many people who also tragically died. After this, all of the survivors were awaiting the Carpathia in the darkness and the cold. There was no food or potable water in the boats, and many of the boats didn't even have lights of any sort, so they sat in silence and darkness. The situation was the worst for Collapsible B, which was upside down and only floating because of an ever-diminishing air pocket underneath it. As dawn began to creep toward the survivors, the wind and sea picked up, making the sea choppy. Those on Collapsible B were forced to stand on it to keep it from completely capsizing, and some, who were just completely exhausted, couldn't stand it any longer and tumbled into the sea, only to drown. It became increasingly difficult for everyone else to maintain their balance as waves splashed over the Collapsible lifeboat. Later on, Colonel Gracie would write of the perilous position he and the other survivors were in, recalling it to be, quote, the utter helplessness of our position. This position is depicted in the film A Night to Remember, and it's done very well. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. As for the rescue, we're only going to cover this briefly. If you want to hear more details about RMS Carpathia and how she rescued the passengers of Titanic, check out our video from last July on RMS Carpathia. I'll link it in the cards. RMS Carpathia, a Cunard Lines ocean liner captained by legendary captain, outstanding gentleman, and later Commodore of Cunard Lines, Captain Arthur Rostron, raced to get to Titanic as quickly as she could and at considerable risk. 
She had to dodge icebergs and pack ice on her way to Titanic's location, but she did so anyway, with Captain Rostron directing all steam away from everything, including heating and the kitchens, in order to reach 17 knots, the fastest Carpathia would ever go to reach Titanic. You and the other passengers would see the lights of Carpathia at 3.30 a.m., and it was the most welcome sight. By 4 a.m., Carpathia was beginning to take on survivors. It would take several hours for everyone to board. The 30 or so men that were clinging to collapsible B had managed to board two other lifeboats by this time, though sadly one man would die just before Carpathia arrived. However, those in collapsible A were not so lucky. More than half of them had died overnight, and the remaining survivors were transferred from Collapsible A to another lifeboat, leaving behind three bodies in the collapsible. Collapsible A and the three bodies would drift away and be recovered by RMS Oceanic a month later, with the decaying bodies still aboard. As dawn broke over the Atlantic Ocean, the passengers of Carpathia were shocked by what they saw, which was described by one as, quote, fields of ice on which, like points on the landscape, rested innumerable pyramids of ice. As for Captain Rostron, he saw ice everywhere. This included 20 large bergs, measuring up to 200 feet high, as well as a vast amount of smaller bergs. Along the way, they also ran into ice flows and debris from Titanic floating around in the Atlantic. Relief washes over you as the lifeboats begin to be brought alongside RMS Carpathia, and survivors boarded Carpathia in numerous ways, including climbing up rope ladders for those strong enough, some being pulled up in slings, and the children being hoisted up in mail sacks. Everyone was exhausted and still in shock from their experience, and you're one of the people in the last lifeboat, which was Charles Leistoller's Lifeboat 12 with 74 people crammed in like sardines in a can, despite the fact it was only designed for 65. Everyone was on Carpathia by 9 a.m., with small scenes of joy as families and friends were reunited, though most of the scene was tragic with families and friends grieving for those lost. You didn't know whether or not your family members or friends survived until you were on Carpathia. I can only imagine the pain of rushing through the crowd of people in a panicked but hopeful craze only to find the soul-crushing reality that you might be the last survivor of your family. Some families were wiped out entirely. Fifteen minutes after everyone was on board RMS Carpathia, two more ships showed up to assist, Mount Temple and the notorious SS Californian. Since it was now dawn, and they finally learned what had happened overnight when her radio operator returned to his desk. By this point, however, there were no more survivors to pick up. Carpathia had completed the rescue mission already. Carpathia was supposed to head to Fiume, Austria-Hungary, which is current-day Rijeka, Croatia, and I do apologize if I butcher these names. However, she didn't have the medical facilities nor the foodstuffs to care for the survivors who were cold, hungry, injured, and traumatized. With this information in mind, Rostron made the decision to turn Carpathia toward New York City so their survivors could receive proper care. Carpathia left the site of the disaster, leaving Mount Temple and Californian behind to carry out one last futile two-hour search which turned up nothing but death and devastation. If you wanted to hear more about the harrowing rescue mission Carpathia carried out, make sure you check out her video where we cover it in more detail. On a rainy Thursday evening on April 18, 1912, RMS Carpathia steamed up to Pier 54 in New York City, which is Chelsea Piers today in Chelsea on the west side of Manhattan. It was an incredibly difficult voyage that saw Carpathia steaming through thick fog, thunderstorms, heavy seas, and pack ice everywhere. At the pier, Carpathia was greeted by some 40,000 onlookers standing on the wharves. Even back in 1912 before the age of the internet, the news traveled fast via messages to the shore from Carpathia and other ships. 
However, no one truly knew how devastating it was until Carpathia docked three days after Titanic foundered. At this point, Carpathia was loosely nicknamed the Ship of Sorrow, a stark contrast to the moniker Ship of Dreams that was given to Titanic. Even before this rainy Thursday, the mission to retrieve the dead was well underway. Four ships chartered by the White Star Line, C.S. Mackie Bennett and three Canadian vessels, C.S. Minia, C.G.S. Montmagny, and S.S. Algerine, recovered between 316 and 337 bodies, though the exact number is unknown. Either 118 or 119 were buried at sea, sources differ on the exact number, and about 209 were brought back to Halifax, Nova Scotia. 150 of them were buried in Halifax, 121 were buried at the Fairview Lawn Cemetery, 19 at the Mount Olivet Catholic Cemetery, and 10 at the Baron de Hirsch Jewish Cemetery. 59 bodies were claimed and taken elsewhere to be buried, while 42 remain unidentified to this day in Halifax. Their tombstones have a number and the date of the sinking. There were memorials erected around the globe commemorating the victims of the disaster, including, but not limited to, New York City, Washington, D.C., Southampton, Liverpool, Belfast, and Lakefield. Ceremonies honoring the dead and to raise money for the survivors were held on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Only 23% of Titanic's victims were recovered, with the majority having never been found or recovered. Evidence of their deaths and possibly where their bodies might have been were discovered 73 years later in 1985 on the seabed, like pairs of shoes side by side that could possibly indicate where a body had laid before decomposing and being consumed by sea life. As for the ships chartered by the White Star Line, I'll give you a brief timeline of how their searches went. C.S. Mackie Bennett, a cable repair ship famous for being the very first ship to be chartered to search for the dead and also the one that recovered the largest amount of dead bodies, left Halifax on April 17, 1912 at 12.35 p.m. to head to the wreck site. She traveled a total of 800 nautical miles to get where Titanic sank, and it took roughly four days at sea to get there. She began the gruesome recovery process on April 20, 1912 at 6 a.m. The ship's stock of embalming supplies could cope with 70 bodies, and they also had 100 coffins aboard as well as 100 tons of ice to store the recovered bodies and 12 tons of great iron to bury some of the dead at sea. There were 306 bodies in total recovered by the Mackie Bennett, with 51 being recovered on the first day. This breaks down to 46 men, 4 men, and 1 baby boy which would be identified in 2007 as the body of Sidney Leslie Goodwin, the youngest child in a family of eight who all perished. This just makes my heart ache. I can't imagine that being my baby boy. 24 of these first 54 were buried at sea due to the disfiguration that made them difficult to identify. In total, 116 bodies were buried at sea by the Mackie Bennett due to disfiguration or a lack of embalming fluid, and 56 bodies were buried at sea that the crew were able to identify. On April 30, 1912, C.S. Mackie Bennett returned to Halifax, Nova Scotia with 190 bodies on board, and the town rang church bells and fire bells to honor the dead. C.S. Minia was brought in when it became abundantly clear that the recovery operation was far more than one ship could handle. She left Halifax, Nova Scotia on Monday, April 22, 1912, and arrived at the site of the sinking on Friday, April 26, 1912. Minia would spend one week searching for the area for the deceased, equipped with 150 coffins, 20 tons of ice for storage, 10 tons of great iron for sea burials, and an unknown amount of embalming fluid, if any. 
In total, Minia recovered 17 bodies, two of which were unidentified firemen and were buried at sea. 15 would be taken back to Halifax, 10 being crew and 5 being passengers. C.S. Minia arrived safely back in Halifax on May 6, 1912. We move on to the third ship, CGS Montmagny, and she received all of the empty, unused coffins and spare embalming fluid from CS Minia. She left the same day Minia arrived on May 6, 1912. In total, she managed to recover four bodies, one of which was buried at sea for unknown reasons, and three of which were delivered to Lewisburg, Nova Scotia, and they were sent to Halifax on the railway system. On May 13, 1912, CGS Montmagny continued her fruitless search, but found nothing more, and so she returned to Halifax on May 23, 1912. The last of the four ships chartered by the White Star Line for the recovery effort was SS Algerine, a steamship. She sailed from St. John's, Newfoundland on Thursday, May 16, 1912, to meet up with CGS Montmagny, and she did so on May 19, 1912. She spent three weeks out at sea searching the site of the sinking for the dead. She recovered one body, that of James McGrady. He had served as a saloon steward aboard Titanic. On June 6, 1912, SS Algerine arrived in St. John's, and there Mr. McGrady's body was transferred to the steamer Florizel to be taken to Halifax. Florizel arrived in Halifax on June 12, 1912, almost two full months after the sinking. There were other bodies recovered, including the three from Collapsible A recovered by RMS Oceanic, and all three were buried at sea. One was recovered by the SS Ottawa, and it was the body of William Thomas Curley, a second-class saloon steward, and he was found on June 6, 1912 and buried at sea. One body was recovered on June 8, 1912 by SS Ilford, and it was the body of William Frederick Cheverton. He was a member of Titanic's victualling crew, and he was buried at sea. Four more bodies were recovered by RMS Carpathia when she rescued the survivors, one from the water and three from the lifeboats, and all four were buried at sea. For anyone curious as to what a sea burial looks like, I'll give you a brief description. Ceremonies for burial at sea varies wildly due to religion, so I'll give you the general idea of it. Typically, either the captain of the ship or aircraft, or a religious representative from either the deceased's religion or the state religion, will perform the ceremony. It can include burial in a casket, burial sewn in sailcloth, burial in an urn, or the scattering of cremated ashes from the ship. Burial at sea via aircraft is performed with cremated ashes. There are other forms, like the mixing of one's ashes with concrete and then dropping the concrete block down into the ocean to form an artificial reef. One example of this is the Atlantis Reef, also known as the Neptune Memorial Reef, and it is entirely made of cremated remains and cement, and it is the largest man-made reef at a depth of about 40 feet. The biggest reaction to the disaster was primarily outrage and utter shock, directed at several sources and issues, and this included many overlying questions. Why did Ismay save himself when so many others died? Why weren't there more lifeboats? Why did Titanic run into an ice field at maximum speed? Why were many of the lifeboats launched half empty or more? These, among many other questions, were asked by the public, and they had no answers yet. The largest outcry, of course, was from the survivors themselves. Even while on Carpathia and traveling to New York City, some passengers, including Beasley, were determined to, quote, awaken public opinion to safeguard ocean travel in the future. And they actually wrote a public letter to the Times, which is a British daily national newspaper based out of London that began in 1785. In this letter, they were pleading and urging for major changes to maritime safety laws, which at the time were honestly pretty lax, especially compared to today's standards, which still aren't perfect. 
In places closely knit with Titanic, especially Southampton, the grief was unbearable. For the city of Southampton, the losses were numerous. It was the home port for 699 crew members and home to many of the passengers as well. The streets were filled with enormous crowds of crying women. The mothers, sisters, daughters, and wives of crew members, and the crowd huddled around the White Star offices, filling the streets with a haunting moan and whimpers of sorrow. They waited for news on their loved ones, hoping for the best, yet preparing for the worst. Most of them were related to the 549 Southampton natives who died in the disaster. Meanwhile, in Belfast, where Titanic was built, shipyard workers openly cried in the streets, and the churches were packed beyond their limits. Sadly, those who worked in the shipyard saw Titanic as a symbol of Belfast's industrial prowess. And so when she sank, not only did the city's shipyard workers grieve, but they felt a misplaced sense of guilt. The ones who helped build the Ship of Dreams thought they were at least partly responsible in one way or another, and as we know, this just isn't the case. They didn't hit the iceberg after all, Titanic's crew did. After the sinking of Titanic, there were two public inquiries one in Britain and one in the United States. We are going to cover both inquiries. Please note before we move forward that I am not a lawyer and none of the things I'm about to tell you count as legal advice. Any lawyers listening, feel free to add to the conversation. Since the American inquiry started first, we'll begin there and then circle back to the British inquiry. The news reached a Republican senator for the state of Michigan named William Alden Smith. And when he heard about the tragic sinking, he saw the opportunity in front of him that many might not have. He could establish an American inquiry into the disaster to not only investigate Titanic's sinking, but marine safety issues overall. Let's get a little backstory on Mr. Smith, because it's quite interesting. This wasn't his first rodeo, so to speak. In the past, he'd conducted an investigation into railroad safety issues. From this, he sponsored a lot of the operating and safety regulations passed by Congress that would preside over the American rail industry. However, an inquiry needed to be sprung quickly before the surviving passengers and crew returned to their homes elsewhere. First, he attempted contacting then-President William Howard Taft. However, he was informed by the President's secretary that they did not intend to take action. Well, for Mr. Smith, this simply would not do. Without the help of President Taft, Smith moved forward on April 17, 1912, addressing the Senate. In his address, he described a solution that would ultimately grant the Committee on Commerce powers to establish a hearing to investigate Titanic's demise. Astoundingly, Smith's resolution passed, Taft not required. A fellow Republican senator from Minnesota and chair of the Commerce Committee, Newt Nelson, would go on to appoint William Smith as chair of a subcommittee to carry out the hearings. President Taft received the news that his friend and military advisor, Augerpaul Butt, who had been an American Army officer and aide to both President Taft and President Theodore Roosevelt, had not survived. So the following day, after everything was set up with the Senate, William Smith met with President Taft to arrange additional measures related to the inquiry, and one of these was a naval escort for RMS Carpathia to ensure no one left the ship before it docked. Everyone was a witness at this point. That afternoon, after speaking with President Taft, Smith traveled by train to New York City alongside other officials and fellow Democrat senator from Nevada, Mr. Francis G. Newlands, to meet Carpathia at the dock on the evening of April 18, 1912. At this point, it was public knowledge that J. Bruce Ismay had survived, and it was the intention of the party on their way to New York to serve subpoenas on Ismay and the surviving crew and officers. 
This subpoena would require all of them to remain in America during the duration of the inquiry to testify before the subcommittee the next morning. For anyone unfamiliar with this legal term, we'll briefly cover what a subpoena is. A subpoena or witness summons is a writ issued by a government agency, most often a court of some sort, to compel testimony by a witness or production of evidence under a penalty of failure. There are two common types of subpoena, and pardon my Latin as we cover this. The first is subpoena ad test of condom, and this orders a person to testify before the ordering authority or face punishment. This subpoena can also request a testimony to be given by phone or in person. The second type is called subpoena duces tecum, and it orders a person or organization to bring physical evidence before the ordering authority or face punishment. This is often used for requests to mail copies of documents to requesting parties or directly to court. Obviously, we'd be going for the first type, requiring witness testimony. Smith and company boarded Carpathia that rainy Thursday evening on April 18, 1912, informing Ismay that he would be required to testify before the subcommittee the next morning on April 19th. The hearings began that Friday morning at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York, which still stands today and is a luxury hotel and condominium residence. These hearings would later be moved to Washington, D.C., and there they'd be held in the Russell Senate Office Building, which also exists and is the oldest of the United States Senate Office Buildings. Now we get into our key players of the committee. There were seven senators who would serve on the subcommittee, four Republicans, the Smith serving as chair, Jonathan Bourne from Oregon, Theodore E. Burton from Ohio, and George Clement Perkins from California, and three Democrats. Duncan U. Fletcher from Florida, Francis G. Newlands from Nevada, who we talked about earlier, and Fernifold McLendall Simmons from North Carolina. The composition of the subcommittee was strategically picked in order to make sure there was full representation of the liberal, moderate, and conservative wings of the two parties. Now that we are acquainted with our subcommittee, we can move on to questioning. Questioning of the witnesses would be carried out by various members of the committee at separate times, opposed to having all seven senators present the entire time. However, most of the work was on Smith's shoulders, and he personally would conduct the questioning of all of the key witnesses. This did cause a bit of turbulence between him and the other members of the committee, and it made him more enemies than friends, since it was interpreted as him taking the spotlight. If it was, we'll never know. This would result in some members of the committee attending the hearings infrequently as there was not much for them to do since Smith was practically running the entire thing. We can fault him for this, but I still tip my hat to him for even getting the show on the road to begin with. The official investigation spanned 18 days, punctuated by recesses in between, and testimony was recorded from over 80 different witnesses. The witnesses including surviving passengers and crew as well as captains and crew members of other ships in the area of the sinking, expert witnesses, various officials, and others who received or transmitted the news of the sinking of Titanic. There was a wide range of evidence submitted, from the deposition of correspondence and affidavits to questioning and spoken testimony in the hearings. There was a large number of subjects they covered, many of which we are glad they did. A few of them were Titanic's distress calls, the legal yet severely inadequate number of lifeboats, the ice warnings received and how many, the handling of the evacuation, and even the handling of the ship itself and her speed, which of course was far too fast. The first to be questioned was of course J. Bruce Ismay, however he wasn't the only one who would testify or provide evidence. Others from Titanic included the most senior surviving officer, second officer Charles Lightoller, 
The lookout who sounded the alarm and spotted the iceberg, Frederick Fleet, first-class passenger Archibald Gracie IV, and Harold Bride, a surviving wireless operator. Of those questioned from other ships, some were the captain of RMS Carpathia, Arthur Rostron, the wireless operator aboard Carpathia, Harold Cottam, captain of RMS Olympic, Herbert Haddock, and captain of the ever-controversial SS Californian, Stanley Lord. There were also expert witnesses called in, including those speaking on subjects like iceberg formation, radio communications, and newspaper reporting. This even included the chairman of the Marconi Company, Guillermo Marconi, general manager of the Associated Press, Melville Elijah Stone, and director of the United States Geological Survey, George Otis Smith. Of course, there were many, many others called to the stand, and one of these people was the vice president of the International Mercantile Marine Company, Philip A. S. Franklin. For those who don't know, the International Mercantile Marine Company, or IMM, was a shipping consortium headed by J.P. Morgan, who would also start Chase Bank and controlled the White Star Line. The inquiry would be concluded with William Smith boarding Titanic's sister ship, RMS Olympic, when she was in New York on May 25, 1912. There, he would inspect the ship's system of watertight doors and bulkheads, which, of course, were identical to Titanic's. He'd also interview some members of Olympic's crew while she was in port, and this would help aid the committee's final decision. Now we are going to get into the final report of the American Inquiry, which was presented to the United States Senate on May 28, 1912. The report was 19 pages long with 44 pages of exhibits and summarizing roughly 1,145 pages of affidavits and testimonies. For anyone unclear of what an exhibit is in the legal sense, I'll give you a brief explanation. An exhibit is a document, photograph, object, animation, or other device formally introduced as evidence in a legal proceeding. An affidavit is a sworn statement a person makes before a notary or officer of the court outside of the court asserting that certain facts are true to the best of that person's knowledge. Now that you know those two legal definitions, we're going to move into the recommendations found by the inquiry. And these recommendations, along with those from the British inquiry that we are going to cover next, led to many changes in safety practices after Titanic sinking. The key findings in this report were as follows. Number one a lack of emergency preparations left Titanic's crew and passengers in, quote, a state of absolute unpreparedness, and thus the evacuation was chaotic at best. Quote, no general alarm was given, no ship's officers formally assembled, no orderly routine was attempted or organized system of safety begun. Two, the ship's life-saving equipment and safety equipment was not properly tested before her maiden voyage. Three, Titanic's captain, the late Edward J. Smith, had shown an, quote, indifference to danger that was one of the direct and contributing causes of this unnecessary tragedy. Essentially, an action caused the deaths of over a thousand. Four, the severe lack of needed lifeboats was the fault of none other than the British Board of Trade, quote, to whose laxity of regulation and hasty inspection the world is largely indebted for this awful tragedy. Five, Here's where it gets controversial. SS California had been, quote, much nearer than the captain is willing to admit. And so the inquiry recommended that the British government should take, quote, drastic action against Stanley Lord for his inaction. Six, though J. Bruce Ismay had not given a direct order to Captain Smith to run Titanic at faster speeds, his very presence on the ship may have contributed to the captain's decision to push Titanic's limits. Seven, 
Finally, third-class passengers had not been prevented from reaching the lifeboats. However, they were not aware in many cases until it was far too late that the ship was sinking. Of course, this fact is debated as there is evidence that the crew actively stopped the third class from reaching the boat deck in many cases, but this is merely what the U.S. Inquiry of 1912 found with their limited investigative capabilities. This report was highly critical of established seafaring practices and the roles that Titanic's officers and crew, builders and owners, had played leading up to the disaster. The arrogance and complacency that was prevalent not only on board Titanic, but in the shipping industry as a whole and the British Board of Trade, was highlighted by the inquiry's report. However, White Star Line and the IMM were not found negligent under existing maritime laws, since they had followed the standard practice of that time and the disaster was therefore categorized as an act of God. Honestly, I can agree with the category they placed this disaster in. Senator Smith himself had his own list of recommendations for new regulations that should be imposed on passenger vessels wishing to dock in America, and they are the following statements, and they're pretty dubious if you think about it. Number one, ships need to slow down when entering areas known to have drifting ice and should post extra lookouts. Two, all navigational messages should be brought promptly to the bridge and handled accordingly. Three, there should be enough lifeboats for every person on board. 4. All ships using wireless sets should maintain 24-hour communications. 5. New regulations in order to govern the use of radio telegraphy. 6. Adequate lifeboat drills to be carried out for the passengers. 7. Rockets should be fired by ships at sea only to signal distress. There were two speeches that went along with the presentation of this report one from Smith and one from the Democrat senator from Maryland, Senator Isidore Rayner. Near the end of his speech, Smith stated, quote, The calamity through which we have just passed has left traces of sorrow everywhere. Hearts have been broken and deep anguish unexpressed. Art will typify with master hand its lavish contribution to the sea. Soldiers of state and masters of trade will receive the homage which is their honest due. Hills will be cleft in search of marble white enough to symbolize the heroic deeds, and where kinship is the only tie that binds the lowly to the humble home bereft of son or mother or father. Little groups of kinsfolk will recount, around the kitchen fire, the traits of human sympathy in those who went down with the ship. These are choice pictures in the treasure house of the affections, but even these will sometime fade. The sea is the place permanently to honor our dead. This should be the occasion for a new birth of vigilance, and future generations must accord to this event a crowning motive for better things. Rayner's closing words actually got applause from the assembled senators, and I just have to remind you that though he states here that Nearer My God to Thee was played during the sinking, this isn't confirmed. However, Mr. Rayner stated, quote, The sounds of that awe-inspiring requiem that vibrated o'er the ocean have been drowned in the waters of the deep. The instruments that gave them birth are silenced as the harps were silenced on the willow tree. But if the melody that was rehearsed could only reverberate through this land nearer my God to thee, and its echoes could be heard in these halls of legislation, and at every place where our rulers and representatives pass judgment and enact and administer laws, and at every home and fireside, from the mansions of the rich to the huts and hovels of the poor, and if we could be made to feel that there is a divine law of obedience and of adjustment, and of compensation that should 
demand our allegiance, far above the laws that we formulate in this presence. Then, from the gloom of these fearful hours, we shall pass into the dawn of a higher service and of a better day. And then, Mr. President, the lives that went down upon this fated night did not go down in vain. Smith also proposed three pieces of legislation to be passed. The first was a joint resolution with the House of Representatives to present a congressional gold medal to Captain Arthur Rostron of RMS Carpathia. And you can hear more about that in our Carpathia episode. The second was a bill reevaluating the existing maritime legislation. And lastly, there was another joint resolution proposed to establish a commission overseeing the construction and equipment of maritime vessels. As for the regulation of wireless telegraphy, the report's recommendations were implanted in the form of the Radio Action of 1912, which stated that all radio stations in the U.S. be licensed by the federal government and that all seafaring vessels are required to continuously monitor distress frequencies. The existing Wireless Ship Act of 1910 would also be amended to add new regulations that governed how wireless telegraphy aboard ships would be managed moving forward. In my mind, all of these are good changes. However, we have to note that the American inquiry was gawked at in Britain, both for Smith's style of questioning and its conduct. It was seen as a direct attack on the British shipping industry as a whole, despite the fact that Titanic was indirectly owned by the IMM, an American consortium. Smith was called out for being naive, and many in the UK were appalled at the gall that America had for subpoenaing British subjects. Not all opposed the American inquiry, with some British writers applauding the inquiry. G.K. Chesterton compared the American objective of maximum openness regarding the sinking to what he deemed Britain's, quote, national evil. He described this evil as being to, quote, hush everything up. It is to damp everything down. It is to leave the great affair unfinished, to leave every enormous question unanswered. He would go on to argue that, quote, it does not much matter whether Senator Smith knows the facts. What matters is whether he is really trying to find them out. Even a survivor of the disaster, founder of the Review of Reviews, William Stead, declared, quote, We prefer the ignorance of Senator Smith to the knowledge of Mr. Ismay. Experts have told us the Titanic was unsinkable. We prefer ignorance to such knowledge. I don't blame the Review of Reviews one bit for stating such a thing. Americans, of course, were generally positive to the inquiry and felt it was satisfactory. However, we are going to get into the British inquiry next, so just keep the Americans' findings in the back of your mind. Rewind to the sinking, and when the news started hitting the mainland. When it hit the UK, the responsibility for initiating an inquiry fell into the laps of the Board of Trade, the organization that was responsible for all British maritime regulations and whose own inspectors had certified Titanic as seaworthy before leaving for America. Just warning you now, I'm American, so I might not get all of the legal jargon and legal aspects of the British government spot on, but I'm going to do my best. On April 22, 1912, three days after the American inquiry had already began, the president of the Board of Trade, Sidney Buxton, asked the Lord Chancellor, Lord Lorburn, to set up a commission of inquiry to investigate the sinking. Lord Mersey was appointed as the inquiry's president by the Lord Chancellor. The resulting hearings would take place from May 2nd to July 3rd of 1912, mainly at the London Scottish Drill Hall on Buckingham Gate, and this location was chosen mostly for its large size since they expected a large audience of curious onlookers. However, this building had terrible acoustics and made hearing what was happening almost impossible. During the last two days, the Scottish Drill Hall was being booked for an examination, and so the inquiry was moved to Caxton Hall in Westminster on the corner of Caxton Street and Palmer Street. 
In order to help the inquiry, Harlan and Wolf provided a 20-foot-long half-model displaying Titanic's starboard side, and next to it was a large map showing the locations of sea ice and the North Atlantic shipping lanes. I know it was used for an inquiry, but I'd geek out if I got a 20-foot-long model of any ship from the ship's builders. Sign me up for one of RMS Queen Mary. Sir Rufus Isaacs, the Attorney General for England and Wales, gave the Commission a list of 26 questions that covered a variety of issues, including but not limited to how Titanic had been navigated, how she was built, and the ice warnings that were received before she met her fate. Another question was added to the inquiry after it began regarding SS Californian, which was already being scrutinized. This is the basic layout of the inquiry, and now we'll go over some of the key players on the legal team. For our legal personnel, those who carried out the questioning were assessors and experts in marine law and shipping architecture, and of course, legal counsels. There were five assessors total, and they were Edward Chaston, an Admiralty Senior Engineer Assessor, Commander Fitzroy Lyon of the Royal Navy Reserve, Rear Admiral the Honorable Somerset Gough Calthorpe, Professor John Harvard Biles, an expert and professor on naval architecture at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, and last but not least, Captain A.W. Clark of the Corporation of Trinity House of Deptford Strand, also known as Trinity House, and this is the official authority for lighthouses in England, Wales, the Channel Islands, and Gibraltar. There were others involved, of course, and these key players were the Attorney General who we mentioned earlier, Sir Rufus Isaacs, and he'd be representing the British Board of Trade. Robert Finley, who was representing the White Star Line, Thomas Scanlon, who was an Irish barrister and a member of Parliament from 1909 to 1918, and Clement Edwards, a Welsh lawyer, journalist, trade union activist, and Liberal Party politician. Of course, every person and organization needs a lawyer, too. Hill Dixon, a maritime law firm headquartered in Liverpool, which still operates to this day, represented the White Star Line. There were other legal counsel as well, many of whom were also members of Parliament, and this included Sir Thomas Haymar Greenwood, a Canadian-born British lawyer and politician, and Sir Henry Edward Duke, a British judge and conservative politician. John Simon, the Solicitor General who was also representing the Board of Trade alongside Sir Rufus Isaacs, Sidney Rowlett, an Anglo-Egyptian barrister and judge, Edward Maurice Hill, and the Prime Minister H. H. Asquith's son, Raymond Asquith who was an English barrister and distinguished Oxford scholar. For the organizations that had counsel representing or watching on their behalf, we have the British Board of Trade, the White Star Line, the Chamber of Shipping of the United Kingdom, the British Seafarers Union, which dissolved in 1922, the Imperial Merchant Service Guild, the Marine Engineers Association, the National Union of Stewards, also known as the National Union of Ship Stewards, Cooks, Butchers, and Bakers, and was active between 1909 and 1921, the National Sailors and Firemen's Union of Great Britain and Ireland, which became the National Union of Seamen and Amalgamated with the National Union of Railwaymen in 1990 to form the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers, and the builders of Titanic, Harlan and Wolfe. As for organizations who had representatives strictly watching the proceedings were the Leyland Line, the Canadian Pacific Railway, and the Allen Line Royal Mail Steamers. They probably watched either for gossip or to see how to avoid such a fiasco. So, we have a lot of stuff going into this inquiry to keep track of. A lot of British officials, a lot of companies, and a lot of unions and guilds. Now we get into the testimony and who testified for the British Rec Commissioner's inquiry. 
There were 36 days total of official investigations that were spread out over the course of two months. And in this time, there was testimony recorded from almost 100 witnesses. So already more than the American inquiry who only spoke to about 80 different witnesses. These witnesses would answer set questions that the process set out to answer, and these questions would sometimes be combined with extensive cross-examination. And this resulted in well over 25,000 questions being recorded in the official court records. That's a lot of questioning. For anyone unfamiliar, cross-examination in the legal sense is the formal interrogation of a witness called by the other party in a court of law to challenge or extend testimony already given. It's also described as aggressive or detailed questioning of someone. It's a lot of pressure to be asked questions by your own legal counsel, let alone to be grilled by the other side. This was not only monumental with the sheer amount of questions asked and answered, but the cost of the inquiry made it the most expensive, longest, and most detailed inquiry in British history at that point, costing almost £20,000. That doesn't sound like much, but if you look at inflation, in 2023, that would be about £1,828,647. I couldn't find any statistics for the cost of modern-day inquiries or anything related to disasters, but an example from January 2023 is a North Carolina plane crash that killed eight was settled for $15 million, so court cases can get really pricey quickly. The witnesses testifying in the British Wreck Commissioner's inquiry were passengers and crew members of Titanic, as well as captains and crew from other ships nearby. There were also testimonies given from expert witnesses, government officials, ship designers, and White Star Line officials, so pretty similar to the American inquiry. Among the surviving crew members who were witnesses for the British inquiry were Charles Lighthaller, the ship's baker, Charles Yoffin, Harold Bride, and Frederick Fleet. Again, Harold Cottam and Arthur Rostron from Carpathia gave testimonies, as well as Captain Stanley Lord from SS Californian. In this inquiry, the captain of RMS Baltic, J.B. Ranson, was also questioned. Expert witnesses once again included Guillermo Marconi, but also a star-studded man was included in this inquiry, Sir Ernest Shackleton, famous for his ship Endurance, which we covered last year. I really admire Shackleton, so if I were in the room for his expert testimony, I'd be a bit starstruck. Again, in this inquiry, the UK Vice President for IMM, Harold Arthur Sanderson, was called to the stand. For the White Star Line, were two people questioned. J. Bruce Ismay, the chairman, of course, and Charles Alfred Bartlett, the Marine Superintendent. Evidence was given from Harlan and Wolfe by Alexander Carlyle, a naval architect and brother-in-law to Lord Peary, the chairman of Harlan and Wolfe from 1895 to 1924. Peary and Carlisle were initially responsible for the design of all three Olympic-class liners, RMS Olympic, RMS Titanic, and, at the time, RMS Britannic, whose construction had yet to begin. Carlisle retired from Harlan and Wolfe in 1910, and neither he nor Peary had traveled on the maiden voyage for Titanic. Instead, Lord Peary's nephew, who also worked at Harlan and Wolfe, had Mr. Thomas Andrews, and he had not survived. The only passengers to give testimony in this inquiry other than J. Bruce Ismay were Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon and his wife Lucy, Lady Duff Gordon. Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon was a first-class passenger, prominent Englishman and sportsman who owned land in Scotland. And his wife Lucy was a prominent fashion designer who worked under the name Lucille. She was famous for her lingerie, tea gowns, and evening wear that she designed all of it luxuriously layered and draped garments in soft fabrics of different pastel colors, but she also offered simple, smart tailored suits and daywear. Unfortunately, both of these two would be tied to enormous controversy in the sinking of Titanic, and we'll get to that here shortly. 
For those who viewed the inquiry and those who heard the gossip of it, the highlights of the inquiry as a whole was the testimony and questioning of SS Californians crew and the Duff Gordon controversy. For SS Californians crew, the utter inaction and failure to help a ship that was sinking merely 10 miles away, which had already been disclosed by the American inquiry, was hotly controversial all around the globe, and it became even bigger news with the testimony given by Stanley Lord and his officers. Here I'll tell you to you like a town gossip. Here's the scoop. Stanley Lord and his officers had contradictory statements. Stanley Lord's explanations and claims were flatly different than those of his officers, and this just made him seem manipulative. It was seen as him being intimidating and almost tyrannical toward his crew. It is important to note that Lord and crew were never accused of wrongdoing, so they were merely questioned as witnesses. One historian put it best, stating, quote, the image created in the mind of the public ever since has been of the Californians' officers standing idly on the bridge, so thoroughly intimidated by their captain that they would rather watch another ship sink than run the risk of facing his wrath. I can't help but feel for the crew and officers, however. Their statements and that of the captain should line up if this is merely just public perception, but take my opinion with a grain of salt since it's just that. Opinion. As for the testimony from the Duff Gordons, they were accused of wrongdoing. They were accused of misconduct for their actions since they left Titanic in a lifeboat with enough seats for 40 people, but the boat had only around 12 passengers in it when it departed Titanic. This controversy drew enormous crowds of curious onlookers, and it even featured some of Britain's elite, like the wife of Prime Minister H.H. H. Asquith, Mrs. Margot Asquith, Count Alexander Beckendorf, the Russian ambassador to London, various aristocrats, and several members of parliament who were not in charge of the inquiry itself. I personally don't believe it is their fault for the lifeboat leaving so drastically under capacity. It is the crew's job to launch lifeboats, not the Duff Gordons. One of the biggest differences between the American and British inquiries is that for the British inquiry, they actually looked into the fire that started 10 days before Titanic left port and received testimony about that. This fire burned for several days into the maiden voyage, and it is rumored to have finally been put out the night of the sinking on April 14, 1912. Unfortunately, little was noted about the fire. A modern-day historian in 2016 theorized that the fire might have damaged the structural integrity of the two bulkheads and the hull, and this combined with the other factors of the sinking may have contributed to the breaching of so many compartments, but we'll never know for sure. We're going to get into the final report and conclusion of the British Inquiry. The final report was published on July 30th, 1912, and all the testimony led to multiple things in this report, including a detailed description of Titanic, a full account of Titanic's maiden voyage leading up to the sinking, a description of the damage done by the iceberg that was discovered by the late Thomas Andrews, and probably one of the most important things was the account of the evacuation and rescue by Carpathia. Of course, there was a special attention reserved for SS Californian in this inquiry as well. According to the conclusion of the inquiry, the sole reason Titanic foundered was because of the collision with the iceberg at such high speed. No other circumstances. Not flaws with the design of the ship, not the fire, not the fatal error made by Mr. Murdoch in turning the ship and reversing her engines, none of that. Quote, the court, having carefully inquired into the circumstances of the above-mentioned shipping casualty, finds, for the reasons appearing in the annex hereto, that the loss of said ship was due to collision with an iceberg, brought about by the excessive speed at which the ship was being navigated. 
That was their official wording of it, and for the most part, I agree, but there were so many factors that went into the sinking and the massive loss of life that I think it's a gross understatement to just leave it at the collision and speed. They did note that the lookout being kept was inadequate given the navigational hazards that were presented to Titanic. Being there were only two lookouts that night, the ship was going fast and they neglected to bring along their binoculars, even if it's been proven that that might not have helped. The ship's officers were noted as complacent in the report, though I would hate to say such a thing. I personally believe they were going off of what Captain Smith was relaying to them. The inquiry also doubled down on Californian, stating that she, quote, could have pushed through the ice to the open water without any serious risk and so have come to the assistance of Titanic. Had she done so, she might have saved many, if not all, of the lives that were lost. I agree, though some researchers do not, so that is a factor to consider. Sir Rufus Isaacs, the Board of Trade's representative, recommended to Lord Mersey that a formal inquiry should move forward investigating Captain Lord's, quote, competency to continue as master of a British ship. However, there was no further action because of legal technicalities that are unspecified. Rightfully so, the British Board of Trade was looked down upon for its incredibly lax regulations, especially the rules regarding lifeboats. There should have been enough seats for everyone aboard, and the crews should have been trained properly on how to use them safely and effectively. Luckily, the Duff Gordons were cleared of any wrongdoing, as they should have been. However, they did get scolded for not being tacked. Here's where we get to some serious differences between the American and British inquiries. The Mersey Report, as it's called, did not hold the failures of the Board of Trade, Titanic's Captain Edward Smith, or the White Star Line against them. They did find Smith at fault for not changing course or slowing down, but he hadn't been negligent because he followed the practices that were common at the time and had been deemed safe up until that point. The inquiry noted that British ships before Titanic had carried over 3.5 million passengers east and west on the Atlantic with a loss of only 10 lives. But with how many ships I cover from this point in time, I just don't understand how that is possible. Not saying their numbers or facts are wrong, it just seems odd to me. They would go on to conclude that Captain Edward J. Smith had done, quote, only that which other skilled men would have done in that same position. They did note the practice itself to be faulty, and, quote, it is to be hoped that the last has been heard of this practice. What a mistake in the case of Titanic would without doubt be the negligence in any similar case in the future. As for the recommendations, it would similarly echo the Americans, pleading for changes in safety regulations and practices on British ships. The report was received well by the British press, though there were others that were critical, namely Charles Lightoller. In his memoirs, he pointed out that the inquiry had a severe conflict of interest, stating, quote, A washing of dirty linen would help no one. The Board of Trade had passed that ship as, in all respects, fit for the sea. Now the Board of Trade was holding an inquiry into the loss of that ship, hence the whitewash brush. I think Mr. Lightoller is more than qualified to criticize the Board of Trade, and I wholeheartedly agree with him. The American inquiry was much more harsh, however, the British inquiry did dig into some details that the Americans did not. Neither inquiry was perfect, and both had their innate flaws, however, I think overall they did get the job done. Of course, after these inquiries, there were major changes to the shipping world, much needed changes. After the disaster, the British and American boards of inquiry stated that all ships should carry lifeboats for everyone on board the ship, mandated lifeboat drills needed to be carried out, lifeboat inspections needed to be conducted, and furthermore. 
A lot of these lifeboat recommendations would find their way into the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, or SOLAS, passed in 1914, and we still refer to it to this day, though it has been updated numerous times, most recently on May 25, 1980. Not only were lifeboat regulations changed, but the fact that there needed to be a 24-hour, 7-day-a-week radio watch and in the United States, the Radio Act of 1912 was passed. This rule would also be published in SOLAS. It officially states that not only does there need to be radio communications operated 24 hours a day on ships, but that there should be a secondary power supply so they would not miss distress calls coming in. The Radio Act of 1912 also stated ships needed to remain in contact with other ships in their vicinity and any coastal radio stations. In addition to this, SOLAS would update a regulation stating that red rockets fired from a ship at sea must be interpreted as a cry for help, and not just fancy fireworks being launched on deck. This decision was because SS Californian could see the rockets launched from Titanic, but failed to act upon it for one reason or another. In my opinion, one of the most significant changes was the addition of the International Ice Patrol. The U.S. Navy assigned scout cruisers Chester and USS Birmingham to patrol the Grand Banks of Newfoundland for the remainder of 1912, and in 1913, the United States Navy couldn't spare any ships for the Revenue Cutter Service, which was the forerunner for the United States Coast Guard, and they assumed this responsibility, and they assigned two cutters to the job, Seneca and Miami. SOLAS first convened due to the Titanic disaster on November 12, 1913, and the following year on January 30, 1914, there was a treaty signed by the conference. This would result in the formation and international funding of the International Ice Patrol. It's an agency of the United States Coast Guard, and it's still operational to this day, continuously searching and reporting on the location of North Atlantic Ocean icebergs that could be dangerous to transatlantic sea traffic, passenger or cargo ships. They now mostly use aircraft for the job, but it is still just as important as it was in 1914. As for changes to ship design, there were many, many ships that went through refitting for safety changes, especially for ships with double bottoms. One of these ships was Titanic's eldest sister, RMS Olympic. Her double bottom was extended up the side of her hull to create that double hull for extra safety. Her bulkheads were also raised up to sea deck, and many of Britannic's features would be changed as well, but we'll cover that next week when we talk about her. This extension of Olympics and other ships' watertight compartment bulkheads made the compartments much more watertight and secure, but it wasn't perfect and it still isn't. Anything having to do with humans will not be perfect, but we can continue to improve and learn from the mistakes of the past. Titanic has lived on as a cultural phenomenon that people, including myself, just can't seem to get enough of. From the time of the sinking, she was seen as wildly sensational and ultra-tragic, which is weird since there were other comparable sinkings at the time with a similar story or death toll, but that didn't matter. Titanic's legend will live on endlessly. She is continuously decaying on the seabed, with roughly one ten-thousandth of an inch oxidizing per day on her metal surfaces. One day, she will collapse in on herself, and nothing more than a heap of rust will be left on the ocean floor. There is no stopping it, but it is still incredibly sad to think that the grave of so many will one day just cease to exist. Let's hope that continuously talking about the tragedy can help us remember the victims and honor them. That is what I hope to do with our three-part series on her, as I have always loved the Ship of Dreams and will continue to do so. Thank you for tuning in to the fourth episode of Titanic Month on Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. 
If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review, as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us. And don't forget to check out our second channel, Speed Force Media. Tune in next Sunday for the final episode of Titanic Month, where we cover the final Olympic class sister, HMHS Britannic. Also tune in next Monday for the final bonus episode of Titanic Month. Have a great week and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.